continue to make your name great and may you draw people to yourself through Skiers Church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a few years ago, uh, a a well-known preacher who you'd know if I mentioned their name, but, but I won't, went viral on social media with a clip from a message during one of their worship services that said this, when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. We're, we're doing it for ourselves because God takes pleasure when we're happy. When you come to church and when you worship him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself. Obviously, this spread like wildfire with critique uh, around Christian social media. And it didn't take long before that clip was stitched with a clip from the movie Billy Madison. I don't know if you remember the movie Billy Madison, but in that movie, a person said, a man said, so picture this right after that first clip, what you have just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Now, when we hear some religious or some Christian figure say out loud that we don't worship God for being God, we ought to know that that statement is completely absurd. Right? Help me out here before we switch sermons. Right? Right. Thank you. It's a complete reversal of the beginning, the first point of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which was written 400 years ago, nearly 400 years ago, uh, which is one of the most long uh, and widely held, here's what it means to be a Christian type of documents. And instead of saying with the Westminster Shorter Catechism that humanity's chief end is to glorify God and worship him forever, that's what it's all about. Much of our North American Christianity has sort of often drifted towards something more like God's chief end is to glorify us and enjoy us forever, which is completely false. Now, it's easy for us to kind of pick and choose and pick on some of these well-known viral examples like this one, but the problem is all of us think this way sometimes. Maybe we won't be quite as overt. Maybe we won't say it out loud. But over the last many years, and this isn't a recent phenomenon, we've watched Christianity in the West drift from God-centered to me-centered. In a couple of different sources, I I, I came across a a, a reference to a study that was done in 1985 to 90s. Okay, so this is not recent. Where they surveyed a number of sermons from all kinds of different denominations and churches all over North America, And they found that somewhere about 80% of them were more focused on me than on God. This is is a big problem. Hopefully, I trust that if you start hearing that from here, you'll challenge me and you'll correct me and you'll say, Sean, don't ever preach that one again. That was a train wreck. We're not about you. We're about God. Even some of our, our messages and our Bible study materials that have been published by Christian uh, publishing companies point to us instead of God. They ask, how can I have a better life instead of pointing us to God? They might give us a message like, you need to be brave like David, which, okay, not bad, but that's not the point of David and Goliath, that I can be brave like David. 
we hear a message or, or study, uh, you know, the Old Testament in here, I need to be a better dad than Eli was because his kids kind of went off the rails. True, but that's not the point. We may come and hear a, a sermon series on five ways to be a better husband, six ways to manage your money better. These are different sermons, by the way. Six ways to manage your money better. Three tips on a more intimate relationship with your spouse. All of these things are important and good. That's, let's be clear about that. But as one writer said, it's possible to go to church and hear more about you than about God. And that's a problem. Maybe right now we're thinking, okay, that's, I, maybe that's some other church down the road in another town or somewhere else. Maybe you've heard somebody say something like this before, after, during a service. You know, I didn't really, I didn't really like the music. You know, I'm glad the drummer left because he was too loud. So this last song is going to be just right now that he's gone. Right? It's, it's not really my style. Or maybe you've said or heard, you know what, I'm just, I'm just not being fed. The preacher's not funny enough. Or maybe the preacher tells too many jokes. Maybe it's the same message that you say the same thing on. Now again, there, there may be hints of validity and there is good reason to critique and, and evaluate what we do. But most often when we're saying some comment like that, when we're saying like the church or the pastor or the service, it's not serving me, my likes my tastes, my hopes, my wants, my... Far too often we have been led to believe and, and maybe just drifted into the understanding that church is about me. But it's not. Uh, a few years ago, a couple of authors captured this idea, and I actually remember talking through this as a, I was a kid still in our church, uh, called Cat and Dog Theology. Does anyone remember Cat and Dog Theology? No? Okay. There were, there were a couple in the first one, and it's, it is what it is. Here's kind of the premise of it. A dog says, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, you love me, you must be God. Now a cat, spawn as it is, says, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, you love me, I must be God. But who's the focus in both of those? I must be, right? It's, uh, you're doing this for me. And of, much of what is, is passing for Christianity these days looks like kind of one of those two. Somehow we've, we've, we've lost the plot and we're no longer uh, serving the almighty God of the universe, but instead we've reduced him to some combination of personal shopper, life coach, co-pilot, and genie, all bottled up into one. We use God to get what we want. Think of how many times you pray to prayer like, God, if you blank, I will do this. We're trying to like twist God's arm to do what we want, and that's, that's a problem. Religion, for many, and, and at times, again, this is, it may not be overt, we may not be trying to do this, we've just sort of drifted here. It's become a way for us to use God to get what we want instead of coming and standing in awe of God and, and recognizing, man, it's, it's better to spend an hour in the presence of the Lord than thousands elsewhere. Now, throughout Ecclesiastes, we've been here for a number of weeks, Solomon has 
over and over again expose the meaninglessness of everything that's under the sun. We've heard that a lot, right? All this is just, it's vanity. It's meaningless. It's a chasing after. It's, it's trying to shepherd the wind. But in this next section, starting in chapter 5, he looks beyond the sun. Kind of finally looks beyond the sun, maybe we could say. And he asks, well, what about religion? Can we find meaning there? And as we'll see, there's a warning here too. Religion itself can be meaningless if we don't fear or revere God. If we're simply uh, playing church, going through the, going through the motions, just kind of treating it as a formality and, 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 and going through rote routine, all these things are meaningless if we do not approach God with reverence. And so Solomon goes after three really key critical rituals that are meaningless apart from faith. He starts out chapter 5 by saying this, guard your steps when you go to the house of the Lord. He's going to go after our offerings in this text. Guard your steps when you go to the house of the Lord. Be careful when you approach God. Think about what you're doing. Why the warning here? Well, we were created to have a perfect relationship with God. We, we see that in the opening pages of the Bible. But our sin and our rebellion has severed that. And as we watch the fallout from Adam and Eve's sin take place in Genesis, we, we see that they were cast out of the Garden of Eden, which is where God lived, where his presence was. And the way back was guarded by two angels with flaming swords. They were not allowed back. This sin had severed that relationship. Now, God still loved them. God still cared for them as he sent them away, even. And God still loves humanity and wants to be with us. But that initial intimacy had been broken. And what we see throughout the rest of the Bible and the rest of the Old Testament is God working through things like the law and the tabernacle, and then in Solomon's day, the temple, all as ways to be present, at least in some form, with his people. If you've been tracking with us through that five-day reading plan, through the Old Testament parts of it, you've probably come across more than a, view, a few like striking verses where God does something and it's like, that's, that's a bit of an overreaction, isn't it, God? Just this week in Numbers, there's a section where, where God opened up the earth and swallowed three households and then closed the earth on top of them. It's like, oh, goodness, what? But why did that happen? Ultimately, because they did not guard their steps when they entered the house of the Lord. They decided they could approach God on their terms. They didn't like what God had set up, so we're going to do our own thing. And it cost them. And so the tabernacle at that time, and, and later the temple for Israel, and the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament were all put into place so that humans could live in some semblance of that, re that reconciled relationship with God. But it required to be done God's way, and it required blood, sacrifice, and rules to be followed. It happens on God's terms, not our terms. And we mix that up today still. The problem, even with that, that setup, though, was it, too, turned into formality and routine and religion. 
And many Old Testament prophets repeatedly called this out, saying the ritual itself is meaningless if you're just doing it because you're supposed to. And it's not accompanied by repentance and faith. Solomon weighs in here in the second part of verse 1, saying it's, it's better to approach in obedience, or it's, it's better to, to draw near to the house of God and listen than to offer sacrifice as fools do, for they ignorantly do wrong. It was interesting, as I, again, as I read and studied this passage this week, that there are fools in the house of God. Now that's probably an entirely different message, an entirely different series, perhaps. But I think it's also a, a bit of an appeal to those who are skeptical or hostile towards Christianity. It says, listen, please don't judge Christianity based on me, because I'm going to mess it up. I'm going to fumble it. I'm going to misrepresent Jesus. Judge the merits of Jesus on Jesus and what you've seen him, where you've seen me come, absolutely, but not just on me. Judge Christianity on Christ and his transforming work because we are all still works in progress and there are fools in the house of God. The sacrifice of the foolish person here, here is, is going through the motions, just thinking that because I've done the things, I've gone through the motions, I'll get what I want from God. There's no, there's no faith in that. There's no fear of the Lord in that. It's just believing if I do A, God is required to do B. We see this lots of places today as well. When people maybe uh, say, yeah, sure, I'm a Christian, but their life doesn't look any different than it did before. And then maybe you push back on a little bit and say, well, I, I thought you were a follower of Jesus. Say, ah, but listen, here's the catch. Jesus forgives my past, present, and future sin. So that stuff is good. It, it's just dealt with. I'm just going to go on living however I want. That's, that's, a, that's a big, 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 big problem. That's the sacrifice of fools. We can, we can start to think, you know, God and I are good. Went to church this week, gave a little money, so God has to love me. But this is just using God as a means to an end, and he's not that. He's not some genie that has to respond whenever we rub the lamp. He is God. The Old Testament prophet Samuel says this in 1 Samuel 15. Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices? Now, stop there. He does. How many times when, when, when we're outlining the sacrifices, does it say, this sacrifice will be a pleasing aroma to the Lord, right? So, Yes, he does take pleasure in our sacrifices. But look how it finishes. As much as in obeying the Lord. Just ritual, going through the motions, does not please God. Samuel continues, look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. That word obey is, can be also translated as listen. That's the key to worship. Come and obey, listen to God, and do what he says. I can attend all the services I want, read all the Bible, all the good Christian books I want, give as much as I want, raise my hands when we're singing, but if I'm not obeying God, if I'm not actually listening and doing something about it, then I have a worship problem, and I fall into the category of fool. Throughout his word throughout the Bible, God has authoritatively told us 
what we should do with our time, with our money, with our relationships, with our families, with our sex lives, with so much more. And we're called to submit to that. Now, our problem is often we look for loopholes. And we try to tell the word what we will obey. Some parts we find pretty easy to submit to. I said in the first service, I like the passages that say, children, honor your father. Listen to him. Do what he says. Show that one to my kids at breakfast. Hey, pay attention. But the ones that actually call me to, even what we talked about in the Ten Commandments, to love my neighbors, to life of purity, to a, all these things, these are hard. And, and I can often try to find ways to try to wiggle out from underneath the weight and the calling of those. Sometimes we find other interpretations interpretations of the text so that they don't apply to me any longer. It reminds me of a Tim Keller quote where he says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an, an idealized version of yourself. So guard your steps because God has revealed himself to us through the personal work of Jesus, through the Bible, through his word, and we listen and obey. Solomon then moves on to prayer in verses 2 and 3. He says, Don't be hasty to speak, and don't be impulsive to make a speech before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. And just as dreams accompany much labor, so a fool's voice comes with many words. Don't be hasty with your words or your heart. Remember, remember who God is. God is in heavens and you're just a little speck of dust here on earth. We need to recognize that. We need to remember that God is judge and king of the universe. And so he deserves to be approached with humility and respect, and we need to consider what we are saying to him. Jesus would go on to warn the exact same thing in Matthew chapter 6. He'd say, when you pray, don't just babble on like the Gentiles, because they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your father knows the things you need even before you ask him. The warning here is against thinking that we're in control and by our prayers we can manipulate God. If I use the right language, if I say it enough times, God will have to do what I want. If we uh, speak in the old King James language, sometimes we think, well, that's a really holy-sounding prayer, so God's got to answer that one. So we get bumped up to the list. And we look at someone else who's, who's praying in like a basic child English, just saying, God, help me. Like, well, they must be down the list because it's not about that. The issue isn't, isn't the, the, the what or the how we say the words, but it's about our hearts. Too often, Again, these are some things we maybe want, wouldn't want to admit out loud, but too often we think that God is like our earthly parents, who if we ask it at just the right time, in just the right tone, in just the right way, he'll respond. Hey God, I just put something in the offering plate when it went by. Now I'm going to ask you for this, because you'll remember the offering thing and you'll forget the way I yelled at my kids this morning. Right? How many of us as siblings or have siblings around us remembered that if we ask the youngest one to go ask mom, we got it. But when the oldest went, not so much. Anyone else find it, figure that out? couple? Yeah, my kids too. If we think that just the word count in our prayer 
makes a difference, we are sorely mistaken. The book of Proverbs again and again tells us that the fool speaks a lot and loves to hear the sound of his own voice. But God's not moved by that. Think, too, of, of Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that come into the temple to pray. And the religious one, the one who should have known, right, kind of stands in the prominent place, dressed all the right way, looks out over all the crowd of scum and says to God, God, you're so lucky to have me on your team. I'm so glad I'm not like any of them. I've done this and this and this and this. Where, I mean, it's just so great to be together. As if that would force God to answer those prayers. But the tax collector knew where he stood before God. Remember, he, he stood at the back. He couldn't even raise his, high, his, his eyes to look at heaven or the temple. And he beat his chest and just said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. As I was reading this morning and going over this this morning, I, I wondered, what would it look like if our prayer time was just that? Where we took time each day, with open hands, open heart, open journal maybe, and instead of bringing our shopping list to God, which I do, as much as I don't want to, instead I, I sat and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And just listened for what he wanted to do. If somebody that we love, our kids, our spouse, a close friend, if, they, if we're watching them bike down the street and they crash and go head over heels and, and, and we know that they're hurt, we don't need to be convinced to run over and help, do we? No, we don't, right? <laughs> we don't, right? <laughs> we just go because we love them. We know what they need in that moment. And so we'll go and we'll lift the bike off of them and we'll, we'll bandage their wounds. And, and in the same way, that's how God treats us. He knows what we need. We don't need to convince him. God doesn't need me to tell him I'm a disaster. He's well aware of all the sin in my heart that still needs to be worked on. He knows what we need. So we just come and we just ask. Solomon continues in verse 4. When you make a vow to God, don't delay in fulfilling it because he does not delight in fools. There we are again. But fulfill what you vow. Better that you do not vow than that you vow and don't fulfill it. And don't let your mouth bring guilt on you. Don't say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry with your words and destroy the work of your hands? Now, a little bit of context to vows here. In the Old Testament, vows were sort of uh, pledges that, that the nation or worshipers would make to God as part of their worship and offering and sacrifice process. And in some ways, I've just said we don't do things to get God to act, but in some ways, that's how the vows worked. We can see examples in Deuteronomy 12 and 23 and Numbers 21. And think about 1 Samuel 1, where Hannah said she didn't have a child, and she said, God, if you give me a son, I will dedicate him to you. She had a son, and she dedicated him to the Lord, right? We see him working in the temple. Even today, I, I think, whether we realize it or not, we, we do do something similar. Hey, God, if you get me out of this jam, then I will do this for you. Right, God, if you show up and help here, because I need it, I will give you this. 
And the danger, of course, is that once we're out of that jam, once, once we get out of that situation, we can say, boy, I sure handled that really well. And that vow, that promise to God goes unfulfilled. So Solomon says it's, it's better to, to not even make a vow, to just keep your mouth shut than to make one and not be able to stick to it. I can think of, uh, again, this morning I was reflecting and there are at least a handful of, of moments where I know my mouth got me into trouble, right? <laughs> my mom's watching. She's like, yes, there are lots of moments where your mouth got... But where I've, where I've been impulsive and I've said something, yes, I'll be back. Yes, I'll do that. I'll pray, <laughs> I'll pray for you. And then missed it, right? Dropped the ball completely. She says, better not to make a vow and to make one not be able to stick to it. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, right? Now, we do still make vows in church today. We, we make marriage vows and promise to be together through thick and thin, through, till death do us part, right? When we uh, have a child dedication service, often at the front, we, we, we vow and commit to raising them to know and love Jesus. And, and that's a promise that we shouldn't take lightly. And it's a promise that sometimes get tested when that, that cute little bundle of joy turns three and now they know everything or when they get to the double digits and they really know everything and they think they know more than you and, and, and on and on it goes, right? that gets tested. Sometimes we hear a really convicting message. The Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts and we vow to make a change. But then we walk out and nothing changes. Sometimes we, we vow to be a part of a church campaign, whatever that might look like before we count the cost and consider what I'm actually committing to do. So Solomon says, pay attention to what you're saying to God because words matter. Don't let your mouth get you in trouble. And when you do let your mouth get you in trouble by overcommitting or whatever it might be, don't try and make excuses to get away with it or get out of it. Just own it. Just own it and confess. And don't try to hide either. There's a story in Acts chapter 5 that maybe you're familiar with of, of Ananias and Sapphira, and it really illustrates this. And again, another terrifying, is that the right word? Maybe, terrifying way. They, uh, remember, they promised and they vowed that they would sell some property and give it to the church. But for whatever reason, they held some back. Maybe, maybe when the sale went through, they, they realized, ooh, that was worth a lot more than we thought, and we should keep some of that. Whatever, whatever it was, they held some back, and we read that God killed them for it. The consequence wasn't that their gift wasn't big enough. Let's be clear about that. If they had vowed, we'll sell it, we'll give 50%, and they gave 50%, probably, again, I'm, I'm reading into the text a little bit here, but probably everything would have gone on. But they didn't. They said, we'll give everything, and they postured, and they lied about not doing it, and it cost them their lives. Guard your steps when you enter the house of God. He shows us, Solomon does, shows us that religion that tries to manipulate God into doing what we want is meaningless. The idea that if I do this ritual for you, God, then you have to do this thing for me. It's not biblical. It's not Christianity. It's not the gospel. It's actually some form of paganism. Well, after all that, how do we avoid 
meaningless religion. Verse 7. Therefore, fear God. Solomon concludes this passage. This is really one of the major hinge points in the whole book of Ecclesiastes, where he says, this, all this stuff, if it's done without this fear and awe and reverence of God, it's meaningless. So therefore, fear God. Now, we have a hard time understanding this concept often in, in our culture, the, the idea of the fear of the Lord. Uh, we live in a culture where, where honor and respect are, shall we say, fading. Uh, less and less do we approach uh, parents or teachers or coaches or people who are older than us with respect. If, if I'm walking through the grocery store and I'm trying to, you know, sneak past somebody in the aisle and I say, excuse me, sir, people are like, sir, what are you? It's like, well, respect, right? The idea that, that everybody is the same and everybody is equal, as correct as that is in one sense, has invaded our Christianity and even shapes the way we think about our relationship with God. We're all equal. God, you're lucky to have me on my team. Here are some truths. God is always with me, always with me. But God is not my co-pilot. Even in that statement, the, the seats themselves are mixed up. The analogy still breaks down. God is, I'm, I'm not the co-pilot. I'm somewhere in the back hanging on for dear life. But God is not my co-pilot. We can, we can joyously and truthfully sing what a friend we have in Jesus, but Jesus is not my homeboy. There's, th there's a problem of getting too familiar there as well. And we can rightly cry out, Abba, Father, in prayer. No problem. We're asked to do that. And yet God is still at the same time our absolute, awe-inspiring, sovereign king. And so we humbly submit to and we stand in awe of the God who knows all of our sins and all of our empty promises. Now, some may hear this and object and say, that God that we're supposed to fear, is that's the Old Testament God. We now get gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10. Don't fear those who can kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. But rather... Fear him, there's the same language, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. We are still called to fear God, to a reverent awe of God. Now what we do have that Solomon didn't is Jesus. And it's only through Jesus and his work that we can approach God. In, in Solomon's time, the people had the temple and the sacrificial system as a way to meet God, but it was only temporary. The only, the only way they could deal with their sin was to time and time again bring a sacrifice. And, and once a year, one high priest could get into the most holy places and be with God if they had done the sacrifices right. It was just a, a hint, a shadow, a foreshadowing. But we have Jesus, the true and better high priest. And we have Jesus, the true and better, once-for-all sacrificial lamb. And that's what we're about to celebrate with communion. And so as we get ready for the table, let me read for us from Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews does just a, a masterful job of, of, of walking us through the um, transition, if I can say that, from Old Covenant to New Covenant. 
to help us see how Jesus fulfills the temple system and brings us into this new era of relationship with God. So let me read for us Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to start at verse 5. We read that therefore, as he, as Jesus was coming into the world, he said, you did not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. And then I said, see, it's, it's written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, God. After he says above, you did not desire or delight in sacrifices or offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which were sacrificed according to the law. He then says, see, I have come to do your will. He, that's Jesus, takes away the first to establish the second. And by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never fully take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And he's now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he perfected forever those who are sanctified. And skip down to verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, as he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart. I think we could say with Solomon, with a guarded heart, an obedient heart, and in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. And let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. Let me pray for us, and then we'll pass the elements out. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for, again, this, this text in Ecclesiastes written hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years ago. Yet it still speaks and still challenges us today. I pray that you would help me to evaluate my heart when I come into your house, when I come into your presence, when I come to worship, whether that's on a Sunday together or during a morning devotion time or a small group time, whatever it looks like. I need to guard my heart that I would approach with obedience and with listening rather than to just offer the sacrifice of fools. Jesus, forgive me for when I have been the fool in the text, when I've been the fool in the house of God. Just coming to go through the motions here because it's Sunday again and this is what we do. I pray that you would continue to work out and, and grow in me a fear of you, a, a, a reverent awe of you for so many reasons, but because we, we know that the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, understanding. 
and ultimately flourishing. Jesus, thank you for your work on the cross. Thank you that you came and, and you walked this earth as every one of us is now, and you showed us how to be obedient when we, you approached the house of God. You showed us how to rightly relate to, to God and to others and to creation itself. And you perfectly obeyed the will of God and were perfectly obedient to his plan. And even though you never sinned, you went to the cross and died a criminal's death in my place for my sin and for our sin. But Jesus, we thank you that that's not the end of the story. That three days later, you were raised again, resurrected, conquering our three greatest enemies in Satan, sin, and death itself. And now, as we read, you are seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us, praying for us. And now, because of your work, we can draw near to God. 